California Politics Podcast for the week ending January 25th. On this episode, from California to the White House, California's junior senator makes it official. Shocker. She's running. We are going to discuss Kamala Harris's decision to run for president. And then a quick look at how the investigation into a deadly Northern California fire is the latest chapter in a very tough political road ahead and a public policy road for Governor Gavin Newsom and state lawmakers. And then finally, a quick discussion of number 61. Democrats get another member in the state assembly as a Republican leaves the grand old party. I'm John Myers of the Los Angeles Times. My Times colleague, Taryn Luna, here with me in Sacramento. And happy to be here. And wait for it, podcast audience. I told you she was leaving. She is kind of leaving, but not this week. Melanie Mason, who is now the big, giant, important political reporter of the nation, is in Los Angeles. Hi, Mel. We had this big, emotional, lovely podcast where I like bid you all adieu, and then I came back like a week later. So hello again. Well, you came back almost in a week later because the podcast audience will remind me that uh, we were missing there for various reasons. We'll get to all that. Anyway, we're just thrilled to have Melanie here because she can talk about topic one, which is why I got her quickly before her travel itinerary gets super crazy. Let's get into it. Topic one, Kamala Harris for president. Uh, The junior senator from California announced her candidacy this week or that she's beginning her candidacy or exploratory committee or whatever in the hell we call it. And uh, a big, big um, moment ahead for her, I think, for California after only two years in Washington. So, Ms. Mason, this is your beat these days. Talk about the Kamala Harris rollout and what do you think's next? It was, I mean, it was quite a rollout because it really was the sort of one buzz generating moment after another. And and the first thing that I'll note just to the point is that she dispensed with this whole exploratory committee thing. She's running for president. The, the incremental step is gone. She, she, is, she is in. And she said so on MLK uh, Junior Day at, on, a, on a hit in Good Morning America. Um, and, you know, from there, it's kind of off to the races. I mean, she has been steadily um, doing these sort of high profile media hits. She was on Rachel Maddow uh, this week, which is kind of now sort of a a must stop for all Democratic contenders. Maddow has really sort of had all of the um, the big hopefuls on her show. She is having a, a rally in Oakland this Sunday. She then will go to Iowa. Uh, before that, on, on Friday, today that we're taping, she's going to be in South Carolina. So it's, you know, it was a pretty savvy rollout because there were there were like bits of news almost every day this week that her campaign um, could could drip out there and sort of inject her into what is, you know, a very busy news week. People were still talking about Kamala Harris. It's it's interesting to me, I mean, that none of us are surprised. I mean, she's been she's been signaling this for a while. Um, I suppose you could make the argument, could you not, that uh, Barack Obama was a template of coming to Washington and not being there long and running for president. Um and, and and there's a lot of national politics here, but I want to just do the California version since we are kind of a California politics podcast here for a moment. Um, Californians, I don't know. And Taryn, let me get you to talk about this too. Like, what, like, do we think that Californians know who Kamala Harris is? And that, that seems like a silly question at a point. She was attorney general. She won two elections as attorney general. She won an election for a U.S. senator. But I've always still felt as though there's still a bit of a a mystery about Harris because she was pretty kept her things close to the vest in her California experience about her opinions on things. Right. As attorney general, she never really weighed out on things. She wasn't a really um, politically super like get in every story kind of attorney general. You know what I mean? Like, so isn't it a fascinating to see somebody who was fairly cautious become not so cautious? And then we'll go to Mel, too. But what, I mean, what do you think? 
I would agree with you on that. I think our colleague, Mr. Skelton, touched on that the other day, too, a little bit differently. But, I mean, I'm not sure that she is I, – I wouldn't definitely wouldn't call her household name. I'm not sure how many people actually are familiar with her. I think that there is – there's – there are parts of her resume in California that her campaign and she will point to and say, no, I was out there and I was bold. I mean, you know, for example, she opted not to defend Prop 8, uh, the the gay marriage ban in, in court. And that was, you know, a decision that, that you know, um, probably it had won her over, uh, won over a lot of, of Democratic ac- activists in the Democratic base. But, you know, that was a, a political decision to make and, and, you know, perhaps at the time a, a risky one. Um, but yes, of course, there is, you know, there were in other instances um, particularly if you're thinking about sort of where she was um, during the sort of height of the Black Lives Matter um, conversation and the conversation around police shootings, there was a lot of criticism from, um, you know, criminal uh, justice uh, advocates saying she could have done more. She could have been more out there. Um, and I think that just generally, I mean, she is she's a California candidate, of course, but she her profile, I think, really took off in these last two years as U.S. Senate, um, as U.S. in the U.S. Senate, um, with her questioning of key Trump administration officials. Um, so, you know, Jeff Sessions um, in these Senate committee hearings, or Brett Kavanaugh in his judicial confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court. I mean, those were sort of big, buzzy moments that didn't have much to do with the California story at all. It was much more about this national narrative, the national opposition to Trump, and I think that that's where she started getting notice um, for people sort of outside of California. And so, you know, when we're looking ahead and trying to think, hey, California primary earlier in the calendar in 2020, does that benefit her? I do think that there's there's more to be seen about how much um, Harris is a political figure that Californians are like accustomed to or, or used to. I mean, she's not like Dianne Feinstein that people have been voting to cycle after cycle after cycle. So um, she definitely has has more of a national flavor, I think, than a hometown. I want to talk about the California primary uh, dynamics to this in just a moment. But um, and I don't want this to be disrespectful of Senator Harris and her accomplishments and her work, but I do want to say, isn't there a little bit of political serendipity at play here? I mean, um, not only, you know, that uh, Trump won in 2016, which gave her, you know, the, the ability to kind of be a foil or a thorn in his side, but her prosecutorial background, because you mentioned this, Mel, and her ability to stand out in those hearings using that prosecutorial experience. I mean, th- there is some serendipity to this, isn't there? I think that's a fair point, but I also think you could say that for a lot of other candidates who are sitting in office right now. Okay. Right? I mean, okay. Trump gives you that opportunity to attack and, you know, to put your values out there in comparison to his. Well, I would just say that Trump, it's, it's not risky for any Democratic politician to go hard against Trump. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is, um, it's like the lowest hanging fruit. And so I, I think that that was sort of um, her ticket to entry was the fact that she um, was seen as, as, as a, you know, major figure in the resistance. But um, I think that as the Democratic primary takes shape, there's going to be, the, the first question I think that Democratic voters are going to ask is who is best positioned to beat Trump. Um, I mean, that is just that is such a um, a longing among the Democratic base to put up somebody very strong for the general election. But then I think that there's a whole other range of questions about sort of what does it mean to be a Democrat? What is the future of the Democratic Party? Um, and and that's going to be fleshed out as this Democratic primary, you know, really starts to to gain momentum. And so I think, yes, she's gotten into the door because she showed that she can take on Trump. And perhaps that is something that has won over enough voters, um, you know, that, that that'll be enough. But I think that the next test for her, and again, this is the next test over 
a, the coming year, um, is going to be what is her vision post-Trump? What is the Democratic Party? If she were to be the putative leader of it, how would she? So let's talk about this California part for a moment before we move on. Um, so, Taryn, you were at a quick chit-chat that Governor Newsom had with reporters the other day, and somebody asked him about Harris and an endorsement, and he was like, I'm not telling you now, or I'm not, I'm not getting in that, really. I mean, Yes, we broke away from wildfire questions, and someone asked if he um, was going to endorse Harris. His answer was he would let us know if and when he decided to do that. Someone followed up with, are you running? And he was, you know, an adamant no on that. Even though, as we reported, uh, you know, everybody could help but notice that his political effort had Facebook ads that appeared in Ohio and Florida. Gee, slightly important presidential statements. But they said, no, 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 it's just expanding his political donor base or something to that effect. But so let's say let's say he's true. Let's say on all of that. Um, I'm struck by the interesting element of Harris jumping out early. Eric Garcetti is still out there, the mayor of Los Angeles, who had a big week with the end of the teacher strike. This is agreement um, at um, LA Unified uh, for, for uh, salaries for teachers. Garcetti's out there. You got to wonder what he feels like about with Harris in the race. Uh, Melanie, is, does the crystal ball continue to have Eric Swalwell in the mix or not? Yeah, there's still definitely chatter about him. And I mean, he is somebody who has really gotten his um, national stature profile from being a very frequent guest of uh, cable cable news. And sure enough, I was watching a lot of cable TV, cable news this week, and he is a very frequent guest. And so I think um, he has that platform to continue to um, get his get his face, get himself out there in front of uh, Democratic voters. And yeah, there's still there's still chatter. I think that I think. I'm curious to watch Newsom. I don't I don't for a moment believe that Newsom's endorsement or lack of endorsement in this race is going to uh, materially impact, I would argue, the national scene, really. But I am coming back to the presidential primary in California, and that's kind of where I wanted to make the point before we move on to other topics. That primary, as we know, was moved up to um, March 3rd, first, uh, first big Tuesday there in March, along with other states. But because so many of our votes are cast by mail— uh, ballots will start to go out in early February. I think, and I don't have the calendar in front of me, sorry, podcast audience, I think they go out on the same day as the Iowa caucuses. So this this calculation of California, to me, plays fairly large. And I know, Melanie, that people are saying, well, Harris is setting up an operation for South Carolina, and she's setting up her headquarters in Baltimore, or I know she's having an official rollout here for this weekend in Oakland. But that has got to be a huge factor, does it not, at least in the early tea leaves, to have that California presence that early on? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it does, but I also think it is what is that, what is that, how does that change how Harris or any of the candidates run? Because if mail ballots are going to be going out so early, that means that they can't, you know, they can't ignore California um, at the expense of these other early voting states. And remember how expensive it is to be uh, running in California and to be getting to reaching voters. You're not going to be doing it in coffee shops and living rooms. You're going to have to do it over the air um, and or, or with field. And so, um, um, I think for for Harris, but really for everybody, it I think it shifts the spending calculus so much earlier because there is just there there's no state like California in terms of the amount of money you have to spend to make an impact. And if you have to start spending that money even before the other early primary states are voting because of mail ballots, I mean I that's why I think things like burn rate and you know um, how campaigns are sort of guarding their resources now so that they can uh, you know spend them later on. All of those factors are going to be incredibly important. 
Um, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch, and um, Harris's big splash this week certainly gives us a lot to talk about and to look for in the, the weeks ahead. There are no national political reporters that I can think of who I would force to stay for topics two and three, except for Melanie Mason, because she knows our California world well enough. So, Mel, stick with us for a little bit of the conversation in topics two and three, and, uh, you know, we'll throw in an extra uh, parka for Des Moines when you go next week. Um, topic two on this week's podcast, brief discussion about the political road ahead, the very tough road on California wildfires. This week, state fire investigators issued their report on the origins of the deadly Tubbs fire. We'll remember that burned through the Santa Rosa community in Northern California in 2017. It did not cite PG&E equipment as being to blame, but rather a privately owned electrical system. I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the weeks to come. This isn't a discussion of the fire so much as it is the politics of the utilities and wildfire policy and the major challenges, I think, for Governor Gavin Newsom and lawmakers. So, Taryn, start us off here. Talk a little bit about Newsom and this. I mean, people are looking to him. This is a, this is a big moment early on in his uh, leadership of California about how to deal with PG&E's bankruptcy fears and wildfire policy in general. Yeah, I mean, we had a sense that it would be one of the first big issues he was going to have to address when he came in as governor. This one specifically poses a problem because PG&E is not responsible. PG&E's equipment didn't cause this fire, and it's a private landowner. And so far, the investigators have not said that there was any criminal um, charges, right? There's no criminal act. That, there's no criminal acts here. It's going to be a question of how these people who are underinsured um, recoup their losses, or even individuals who are insured, whether that all falls on the insurance industry or what you do there for those victims. And that's something the legislature is going to have to address. And again, big hot potato. Well, especially too, because um, as you said, just, you know, as you said, with PG&E being supposedly out of the mix, or at least appears to be out of the mix with the Tubbs fire, and therefore um, the billions of dollars that people thought they would be on the hook for, um, what's going to make those people whole in that area? What is the state going to do? What state role is there um, in paying damages or, or something to get, you know, as those people slowly work their way back into all of this? You know, and I'm reminded, uh, name check, Melanie, to the piece you wrote as part of the series about the next California and what a new governor would face in terms of disasters and wildfire. Uh, while all of that was laid out, we've got a super big layer here about the utility industry's stability and the health of a major, major utility, 16 million customers in California. That just amplifies the test for this governor. I mean, it's just like talk about all it's like one factor on top of another factor on top of another. And and I just want to say that one of the other things that struck me from sort of watching this from afar, because I am still on everybody's press list. You guys can take me off your press list, by the way. Um, but I'm still getting the statements <laughs> from legislators representing. And, um, you know, it was the news of uh, that, that PG&E was not responsible for the for the Tubbs fire was kind of. It wasn't disappointment, but I could. There, it was the sense of like, there's not really this this resolution, even though we they identified who you know the landowner that caused this. It's like there's there's such a desire for like explanation when these horrible things happen, and PG and E kind of being the big bad behemoth in this was was a really easy political punching bag, and also because their equipment does cause a lot of fires, so it's not like they're you know out completely scot free of liability in this larger conversation, but you could almost feel this palpable sense of like it's unsettling not to have like one 
entity to focus your angst or ire at. And instead, John, to your point, it's a much more diffuse problem. And so the question is, yes, where do the utilities come in and bear responsibility? What happens to insurers? What is Where's the responsibility of homeowners and where they're choosing to to build or, you know, if they're protecting their, their property sufficiently from fire or not? The truth is, is that there isn't really one entity that you can blame, but that's not a really satisfying place to be. Yeah, it's a very complex problem. You look at the climate change issue. You can also look at, you know, how the state's up with set up with its liability laws. And I mean, when you talk about PG&E not being to blame for this, I do think a lot of people expected that. There were some things written along the way that suggested that it would have been a private landowner and not PG&E. But Newsom reminded us. Well, that doesn't her- let PG&E off the hook on other fires, which are still pending. Exactly. And I mean, Newsom made the point yesterday that PG&E still was found responsible for 17 fires from 2017 alone, right? Or their equipment was at least linked to it. Um, so there's still a lot of anger at PG&E. Uh, I don't think Tubbs lets them off the hook. We have the campfire you know, everything going on there, the Woolsey fire. Well, that's, of course, uh, Southern California Edison. Um, but there's a got to have to be a lot of work on this this year. I think legislators really went out of their way last year to try to, you know, help PG&E on this liability issue and address it. And now, you know, the first month back into session, it's slapping them in the face again. I think I think I'm really curious to to see um, who who leads this conversation here. I mean, because you have a new governor, um, who is kind of being looked to, to, you know, he talks about his staff is working. There's a strike team looking at these issues. PG&E's bankruptcy is looming. Um, but at the same time, the legislature's done substantial work through uh, 2018 about wildfire issues. You have some leaders there who have particular uh, thoughts on this. I'm also curious to see how much of this continues to be a story about PG&E versus wildfire danger and utilities. Southern California Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, they're other bi- they are also big investor-owned utilities. But how much of this is PG&E be the, being the boogeyman, right? And how much of that plays out of here? And I just think it's a very challenging place for Newsom. I mean, he is He's mindful that his words can sway the, you know, the markets, the viability of PG&E, um, that people see the buck stops there. But it, it's, it's a really, really complicated place, um, and it's a very early test in his governorship. That and the strike, uh, the teacher strike in Los Angeles, both are, are key tests for him. Um, I'm also curious really quickly, and Taryn, you can take this and then we'll move on to the other topic, but... Um, when we have to figure out what's going to get spread apart here and how much of the conversation in Sacramento is going to be about PG&E specifically now versus the broader wildfire policy that we had last year, you know, regulatory, how does the PUC operate on this? How much of it is going to be driven by the the shadow, the looming shadow, as I said, of PG&E saying we're going to file for bankruptcy? I mean, I think there will always be the reality that PG&E has been found negligent on a number of occasions, and so there'll be a focus on PG&E. But what I'm hearing a lot of are these conversations about rethinking the system um, from enforcement and how we enforce wildfire safety all the way through to the end game with liability and what we do there in the liability laws. So I don't think that, you know, looking at PG&E as the boogeyman is necessarily going to solve this or putting some sanctions on PG&E or whatnot is going to solve this. They're really going to have to rethink how we approach wildfire, how we prevent wildfire, and what we do after wildfire strikes. Um, and that, that will be a big task. Newsom at the press conference the other day also kept referring to this uh, wildfire commission that was created under SB 901, 
So a number of individuals have been put on that. People have been named to that recently. He was saying he wanted to get that group to be working a little bit quicker to come up with some conclusions and ideas. So I think we might see some policy driven out of whatever they come up with how does in that assessing not, the problem. But how does that not turn into the standard Blue Ribbon Commission, right? Like where it's a great idea and you put the proposals up on a shelf and they gather dust. I mean, like, where's the where's the teeth in that? I think it's just the urgency to it, okay. right? I mean, I think a lot of these commissions are looking at issues that maybe don't need to be solved right away, but I, th- I think you also make a good point. It seems like they're really trying to get this commission working quickly, and legislators also have a number of ideas of, of different bills and things they want to do to address this. But we haven't heard much from the Newsom administration on policy in terms of what they would be doing to address this problem. We're going to spend a lot of time on this topic, I think, again this year like we did uh, last year. It's just the conditions in California. Um, let's go to our last topic on this week's politics podcast, and this is pure politics. And Melanie said she's still on the uh, email list of every state lawmaker. So note, take Melanie off your list, but keep her in your heart. How about that, Mel? Does that work? Yeah, that's really nice. Feels like, like an after-school special or something. <laughs> Last topic is an unexpected announcement on Thursday in Sacramento. In the old days, Melanie would have been in the hallway. I was in the hallway. Uh, San Diego lawmaker Brian Mainshine, who was a Republican, who stood up with Democrats in the state assembly and said, I am switching teams. This morning, I went online and re-registered as a Democrat. Changing my party registration is no small matter. It is letting go of a lot of history. I've been a member of the Republican Party for all of my adult life. I served and Mainshine went on to say that's what he still cares about and that the issues he cares about now seem to be represented more by the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. So before we talk about just kind of the interesting politics of this, let's remember that brings Democrats to 61 members in the Assembly, 19 members uh, of the Assembly would be Republicans. Mainshine, who was not seen as a far-right Republican anyway, now joins um, so many Democrats in San Diego. There's so few Republicans uh, left in that universe now. Let's just talk about the broader politics. Melanie, you spent a lot of time in the Assembly in your time here. You watched all the dynamics of this. Uh, When you saw the news break from afar, what did you think of it? Well, I th- the first thing I thought was is that, I mean, he, I mean, we should remember that Mainshine barely, barely, barely won his seat this time around. Um, and other Democrats who had crossed the aisle um, for votes, like, uh, I'm sorry, other Republicans, like Catherine Baker, lost their seats. I mean, I think that this is a reflection of the brand problem that the Republican Party has in, in this state. And so when you have um, what really are moderate Republicans, like Brian Mainshine, looking at the political sort of landscape, they're just thinking, um, you know, they could either be tagged with a with a brand that that is apparently toxic to a lot of California voters, or you can you know come over to a, a Democratic Party that, quite frankly, you know, Mainshine is not all that different from sort of the moderate business friendly Democrats that we've seen um, in in the caucus. And so you know he talked about um, you know his support for um, while he's personally against abortion, support you know supports uh, you know a woman's rights to choose. He's supportive of gay rights. I mean, those are some of the social issues that are unanimous more or less in the Democratic caucus. Um, and so if it really is just a matter of where he's going to come down on certain business issues, then that kind of just makes him a mod. Yeah. And I mean, when you, yesterday, Democrats really rolled this thing out, right? Rendon had a press conference about it. It was a big announcement. He's the 61st vote. And to me, it just seems more symbolic than anything. I mean, I don't know that a 61st vote is going to make that much of a difference. As Mel has mentioned, he was already pretty moderate. So I don't know that he 
I don't know that it's going to make much of a difference on a vote um, from a day-to-day basis, but I do think it serves as this marker of the further decline of the Republican Party. It's just the the, the um, one of the things that's interesting to me out of this is um, that Mainshine tried very hard to say he has not changed and that these are the policies he had. And And if you look at his not so much his voting record, which I don't think we had time to look at in detail, but if you look at the scorecards uh, that different interest groups put out, and I looked at them for Mainshine when this announcement came out on Thursday, uh, it's very um, it's very all over the place. It's not like a lot of members where, you know, the labor people are all here and the conservative people are all here. He scored somewhat in the middle and reasonable numbers on um, people who are generally left, right. Um, you know, he got a little bit of both. But he's always been under the radar. He's not been a guy. It's not. It's. I mean, he has voted for things that were important. Important. I mean, and people pointed out to me he was a key vote in some of that housing stuff that moved forward. And the too. yeah, exactly the the one the Atkins bill right with the um, the transaction fee to fund some of the housing. He was a decisive vote in getting two thirds in the assembly there. But outside of that, he hasn't been a guy who. Um, I don't know. He's not the guy that first comes to mind when you talk about some of these challenges there. And, of course, the reaction from Republicans, from the Republican leader, Marie Waldron, the Assembly Republican from Escondido, whose district is right next door to Brian Mainshine's, was um, – what would you describe that as, Taryn? Like uh, – Hot take. It was a. Yeah. It was spicy. It wasn't kind. <laughs> call, call it, called him a turncoat. Said it was just to protect his job. But getting to the job part, and Melanie, Taryn, both of you, just take a whack at this for a moment, if you could. How does Mainshine now present himself to the voters of that district? Because some of the voters who voted for him voted because he was a Republican. Um, he doesn't have a natural home. He only lost by about. I mean, he only won. Excuse me. Lost Freudian slip. He only won by about 900 votes. To your point, Melanie, in November. So he's got to prove himself as a Democrat, and then the Republicans who voted for him because maybe they, if they thought he was a pragmatic Republican, he can't lose them. I mean, he's kind of a guy without a country, isn't he? Oh, I guess, but he's also a guy without a country that's now in a Democratic caucus that has a lot of money to spend, um, and so his country is a, is the is a you know. Democratic Party that is going to spend money on his behalf. I think the other thing is, is like, I mean, let's remember, most people don't know a ton about their legislators. So there may be people who had been voting for him and they voted for him because they like, they, you know, they saw the R behind his name or they knew him personally, in which case, um, you know, they probably are aware that his politics were probably on the more moderate side. But I would think that to average voter in San Diego area, if they see Brian Mainshine with a D behind his name in the next uh, election, um, they may you know, recall the name, particularly because it's a name that maybe stands out as opposed to like Joe Smith or something like that. But I don't think that they would be like, well, wait a minute, I am convinced that I saw him as a Republican on the ballot two years ago. There's just not, it's not like he's a U.S. senator that switched his party preference. I think that he he gets to cloak himself in the overall brand of the Democratic Party and the resources of the Democratic Party. And I think that's just so much more of an advantage right now in California compared to the Republicans. And we've seen others do it as well, right? He's not the first one to do it. Nathan Fletcher did it in a very similar well, he went to, area. But he went to an independent first before he went to Democrat. And, so, and yeah. then switched over, but still won office to the Board of Supervisors as a Democrat. And I, I cannot say I was closely watching that race, so I don't know how many, if that question came up or, or you know, what kind of pushback he got on that. I just want to make one other point, John, to your point about how scalding Marie Waldron's statement was um, about him leaving. Contrast that with former Assembly Republican leader Chad Mays, who basically said, 
I get it. (laughs) The Republican Party left him. I mean, it is really stunning, this divide that you're seeing within the Republican Party in the state. And there is this faction um, of uh, Republicans who want to position themselves as more moderate and mazes among them. Um, And the fact that you had a former Republican leader basically saying, yep, I understand it. It's totally reasonable for him to switch parties. That's really stunning. And so, yes, the, you know, people in, in uh, like Marie Waldron weren't happy and the base, of course, were, weren't happy. Um, but it's not like it was even unanimous within the Republican caucus, the reaction to this. Well, and, and I want to talk about Mays and one other Republican here just as, a, as one other part to this. So uh, Chad Mays, the former Republican leader, as you said, you know, said what he did on Twitter. Um, Mike Madrid, who is a Republican strategist who has been— um, uh, quite concerned, quite vocal about the direction of the party under President Trump and the outreach to Latinos and, and communities of color. Madrid tweeted, uh, note to all Republican assembly members, you are now in a targeted seat, every one of you. There's too much money and not enough places to go for your district to not be a target. Handle yourself accordingly. And uh, noting noting that that it's it's difficult to be a Republican in this universe. And both gentlemen, Mike Madrid and Chad Mays, both talked about Um, a candidate for chairman of the California Republican Party's reaction, which is Travis Allen, the former assemblyman who ran for governor and didn't win for governor. They talked about Allen because Allen's uh, comments and his criticisms about the Republican establishment. And Mays actually specifically said in another tweet, because I wanted to talk about this, this is quoting Chad Mays, mark my words, if Travis Allen becomes chairman of the California Republican Party, more sitting legislators will leave California GOP, Winning in politics requires addition, demagoguery, and division proves to be a losing strategy. This mainshine moment, a little alliteration, um, sets the stage for this discussion about who's going to be chair of the party and the future of the party in the next uh, few weeks before they have a convention, doesn't it? I mean, Taryn, I mean, this, this is a stage setter for a moment in a way. Yeah, and I think it's a critical question for the Republican Party. It's a question of whether they're going to go a route that appeals to more voters and might bring them back into relevance, or if whether they're going to stick to the tried and true, you know, conservative, uh, pro-Trump ideas. And and you know that it, it's a big turning point for them. Uh, Melanie, do you think there's any um, just from your wearing both hats here, national and then your longtime state thing? Um, uh, does this role? I mean, how much? Do what you're seeing on the national level now with the fight and obviously the the shutdown news and the news that there's a deal here at the end of the week for something. But how much of that, plus this issue of um, intrinsically California stuff, do you think plays back for California Republicans and then for the national narrative after that? I mean, like, is there a what's my Venn diagram here, Melanie? Huh. I'm bad at (laughs) Shapes. I was going to say bad at math, but that's not really what we're talking about. Um, you know, I mean, that's a good question. I don't think that the I, – I would assume, based on zero reporting, so the best kind of assumption, that, that Mainshine had been con- considering this – um, you know, prior to, you know, the, the, the shutdown really taking this full force and sort of the real um, slide in the polls nationally that we've seen for Trump. I mean, I think, again, the biggest lesson was in November for him and in his own election and, and the defeat of other, uh, uh, you know, of key moderate Republicans, um, you know, Catherine Baker, I think, being the, the, the one that stands out to me. But but I do think that, you know, the fact that, that we have the state Republican convention happening in just a couple weeks, as you mentioned, and like, let's layer all of these factors. So you have people People like Mainshine leaving the party, so that means that there's more look, you know, more press coverage of, you know, wither the Republicans, which we constantly say. And you have, I mean, 
Trump is as at extremely low levels, you know, lowest approval ratings. He is now by deciding to reopen the government without getting um, any money for the wall, essentially capitulating to what the Democrats had been demanding for the last uh, 30 some odd days has infuriated the base in addition to Democrats being infuriated him. So, I mean, I do think that maybe this is a moment um, of real sort of soul searching for California Republicans, which is is the current path that we have decided to go. And, you know, I think there was there was base Republicans, you know, really um, red meat Republicans in, in the California Republican Party far before Trump. But there is a conscious decision of the party to align itself with Trump. And now I think you have all of these data points, both statewide and nationally, where I think that there it's a fair question. Like, is this the right way to go? Is it going to get better? Is are Trump's approval ratings going to get better? Um, because if it does seem like the base is just narrowing and narrowing and narrowing that it appeals to, um, I don't know. It seems like maybe that would be a less... Um, uh, appealing proposition. Well, they get to make uh, some of those decisions and some of those actions very soon with the state Republican Party convention, their winter convention coming around the corner in this election of a chairperson. And um, whether uh, the long years and years and years discussion of the direction of the party changes or not, um, I guess really remains to be seen. But but the mainshine moment, as I called it, I think does weigh heavily in this and certainly cast a, a, a new chapter of discussion chatter out of this. So we'll see. I guess another point of line of ideas that I think are kind of interesting is what does this also mean for the Democratic Party? Mm. Right? You continue to have these factions when the Democratic Party and this, I mean, if we see more Republicans doing this, does this pull the Democratic Party a little bit more to the right? Does it create those factions? Does, does it, it divide those? Does it further diversify the party, which could be challenging? Yes. And, and I mean, what are the implications there for Democrats down the road? No, it's a, it's a really good question because um, Democrats say they're a big tent party. They want everybody in. But this is a really tough time in Democratic Party politics nationally and in the state about what it means to be a Democrat um, ideological, however you slice it. And the, and the presidential campaign, Ms. Mason's beat now, uh, does really um, cast an interesting shadow or something over that. So Mainshine becoming a centrist Democrat, maybe that's what you would call him, um, I don't know. It's going to be. It, it really helps that you've given me an assignment topic, maybe that I can give you later. We'll we'll talk we'll talk about that. Um, okay, let's wrap it there. Let's let Ms. Mason pack for Des Moines. Hey, by the way, Melanie, I want to give you some information in case you didn't have it. You ready for this? Uh oh. Okay. In Tuesday on Tuesday of this coming week, the high in Sacramento is forecast to be 64. In Des Moines, Iowa, it is minus one. That's great. I am so excited. <laughs> I just want you to, re we just want you to remember, Mel. Yeah, if it gets too cold out there, we're always here. We're here for you. <laughs> we would consider it if you, you know, if you have second thoughts. I feel like this is like a hostile workplace. This is what this is right now. Oh, and I feel the complaint file, but hey, guess what? I'm not your supervisor anymore. All right, let's wrap it, wrap it, wrap it. That is this week's California Politics Podcast. Melanie Mason, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Safe travels. Thanks, guys. Taryn Luna from The Times here in Sacramento. I'm John Myers from The Times. As always, folks, appreciate it. You can uh, sign up for our Essential Politics newsletter at latimes.com slash essentialpolitics email. And until next time, we'll see you then.